This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson, and we have another great CMO roundtable for you. This one features Megan Eisenberg, CMO of Trip Actions, Harsh Jaharkar, Head of Marketing at Atlassian for Enterprise Cloud Platform and Ecosystem, and Tom Buda, CMO of SignalFX. On this episode, they talk about getting started as a new CMO, the future of SaaS marketing, putting together a marketing team, and much more. A big thank you to Megan, Harsh, and Tom for coming on. This was a really great one. So with that, please enjoy. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click the link in the show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to the Marketing Trends Roundtable. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have three guests, three guests you all know, you all know and love because we've had episodes with them before. Let's go around the table and introduce ourselves. Megan, let's start with you. Sure. Megan Eisenberg, CMO of TripActions. Harsha Walker, Head of Marketing at Atlassian for our Enterprise Cloud Platform Additions and Ecosystem. And I'm Tom Buda, CMO of SignalFX. Tom, you're the you're the grizzled vet on this team. How many episodes? I think this is like your fourth time on for Marketing Trends. I think so. And uh, yeah, I was chaperoned to a couple of others as well. Yeah, that's oh, that's right. Yeah, and and sitting uh, in on a few others. So we're going to talk about some uh, some cool stuff today. Talking about stepping into the CMO role, talking about some SaaS and customer LTV and uh, dabble into putting together a marketing team. First question, out the gates. What do you think a CMO can do in their first 90 days to make sure they have a long and successful tenure? Megan, let's start with you. Sure. I I think a lot of it when having joined MongoDB as a CMO and now TripActions as a CMO, I spent really the first week or two doing a lot of listening and interviewing and just getting a collective uh, set of feedback across the board, not just with everyone in marketing, but listening to sales leaders, listening to product leaders, engineering, uh, the CEO, the CFO, and really to get a sense of what do they think is necessary and needed. And then starting to look at a lot of the data that you could see in the systems, looking at the website, just getting a sense of the overall view of marketing to come up with that 90-day plan and really what are the top three things that I need to get in place in 90 days to show some early results and then to put really the baseline in place to scale the business. Harsh? I think empathy is is a really important thing. In the beginning, first 30, 60, 90 days, you're going to hear a lot about this is broken. This doesn't work. This is why we hired you. Yeah. Or don't mess with this. This is awesome. Uh, but ultimately, I think you, the empathy and listening are key. And you have to be able to signal or show that you care as much as every single CEO, founder. They have to really believe that you're there to help take them to the next chapter. And you're not going to be a passenger. I love that. And expand on that a little bit, because I know that this is something that you know, when you were invited, you know, from the executive team at companies that you've been at, that that was part of the conversation from the beginning was, hey, we want you for this reason. But does that reason change a little bit or does that stay the same? It, it's like uh, it's like fog in San Francisco. You can only see so far. And then as you start driving, other things become more clear. So the nuance here is that you have to earn trust, respect, credibility right in the beginning. But as the fog clears, you're going to earn that same credibility to do new things that are probably necessary, but people haven't really bought into. So that comes later. But in the beginning, it's really about, you know, are you exhibiting the same hustle, the same energy, the same intensity that the founders and the CEO have? Because they really want a partner in crime. I love that. Maintaining the same uh, energy and intensity. Tom, what about you? First, uh, I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but... Uh, first 90 days to have a long and successful tenure. Yeah, I, well, I'd agree with what, what's been said so far, for sure. 
One of the first things that I'd like to do is to make sure I'm aligned with the CEO because there's clearly a vision as to what they want to see done. I usually take uh, the CEO's guidance in terms of here are the key people that you should meet with internally. And then I actually try to get out on the road, usually with the CEO as well as with the head of sales and just observe. And I think from that, you're able to you're able to have a good view as to what you need to do. I also think it's really important to not come in with an agenda, at least not an overt agenda. I mean, you may know that you have to reposition the company, but to out of the gate say, look, this logo's awful and it doesn't play and our positioning is weak and, you know, we have no, none of this or we're not doing this well. You put people on the defensive right away and then they don't share as you talk about. And that's what you absolutely need because whether it's 90 days or really six months, you have an open ear before you start to kind of close down and start because you then are part of all the rhetoric, right? But you have that openness and clarity, I think, uh, in those first, you know, 90 to 180 days where you can, you know, bring fresh ideas. What about the team that you're coming in on? You know, sometimes uh, you might be coming in over a person that, you know, got passed over for the job. Sometimes you have a bunch of new people that are really excited for some new blood, some people who are you know, sad that the person's gone. I know this is more, of, maybe it's more of a leadership question, but from a CMO perspective, because, you know, most CMOs are going to come in with ideas and playbooks and campaigns and all sorts of things in mind, is there some sort of way that you kind of sell the team internally to make sure that, you know, they believe that that you're going to be here for the long term? Yes. I mean, I think you're, when you're coming in and, and you're, you have leads and a te- an existing team, what matters to them is one, they want to, be a part of what's moving forward. There's probably some nerves that with a new leader may be changeover on the team. And so I think listening to them, understanding kind of what their background is and what they're trying to do, as well as when you decide what your top three priorities are, what you're looking to do in the future, that they see what what they're going to be part of and setting the right goals and objectives and then getting everyone to align and their objectives should align to yours, which should align to the companies. So I think there's just a lot of work around setting the North Star for everyone getting, sometimes it's roles and responsibilities aligned and what you expect from their the different functions and making sure they're bought in. And if they're not bought in, then it's making the tough decision maybe to let them go. I've been in a couple of situations where there was either no team or a very, very small team. And sometimes what happens is founders and CEOs will say, let's take some really talented, passionate people, and they can be marketers, right? (laughs) Not that hard. Mm -hmm. Um, One or two people, they'll be marketers until we hit series A. Then we'll figure out our game plan. We'll work with the board and, and, and make this happen. Great. So series A happens, CMO comes on board. They're like, okay, let's, let's, let's talk about what's going to happen here. And at that point, I think you you have to get a sense for aptitude and passion. There are some folks who, who are really versatile. They, they can make transitions from customer success or product, depending on the nature of your go-to-market motion. They can make those kinds of leaps and be incredibly successful. Some other cases, there are folks who, who really should thrive in a different discipline. And that's what you have to triangulate between aptitude, passion, and ultimately what their career goal is. So that's what I had to do in in a couple of situations. And that doesn't happen in the first 30 to 90. It can happen over six to 12 months. It could take some time. The question of what do you do with someone who has passed over for your job that is still remaining in the company is a really, really challenging one, but it's really vital actually. So <clears throat> I've had experiences where I, w- I went into a, an organization where there were actually, it was a very, very large team. And the, the person who was running marketing was good, but didn't necessarily have the respect of the sales organization. And what I was told right out of the start was, we need to, we need to get rid of this person. And yet I saw that he was actually quite qualified. So at the end of the day, we reached a decision that he would leave, but it was only after we had actually done some really good work together. And then he decided that he would move on to another career. In another case, and two other cases, three other cases, I actually became CMO to organizations that had VPs of marketing who were brought in by the founders. 
And having that relationship with the founder is really um, vital. And so in order to be successful and have those people be successful, you actually have to have a different kind of relationship with the founder where they're believing in what you're, you've been hired to do and they have to support you because their natural instincts will be to buddy up. You know, they're, they're just kind of buddies, you know, with people who were there in the beginning, right? When it all just sort of comes together. And, you know, there's a lot of affinity that's built in those years. And so, you know, I've, I've had experiences where one person was able to literally get out of the way, but in two other cases, they couldn't help themselves. And um, in both cases, you know, the CEO is the one that said, we've got to make a move and, and replace these people. So they're hard. You know, you, you want them to be successful. They say all the right things. I want to learn how to be a CMO. You know, I don't want you to teach me what I didn't know before, blah, blah, blah. But behavior is sometimes different. And what about as you're positioning to talk to the board of directors? You know, what are some common mistakes that people make or, or just best practices that people make as they go into those first conversations, talking to members of the board? You know, we've heard from CMOs both on the podcast and behind the scenes that uh, maybe potentially there aren't a lot of marketers on a lot of boards. Some folks, maybe they do, uh, especially in like, you know, maybe MarTech companies, but maybe product-centric or engineering-centric companies don't always have a ton of marketers on the board. Not a lot of VCs that are out there where, you know, marketers turn VCs for whatever reason. So I'm curious, like, what are some of the ways that that you've seen people either go in for, for better or for worse? So, I mean, I think when you're brought in as a CMO, you're brought in for a reason and they want your viewpoint. And the first board meeting, if you're on the agenda, they want to, they really want to hear from you. What do you see? What, what are you seeing that needs to be up leveled or focused on not working? And then what's your plan to go attack that? And so I, I do think they want you to come in and if it's, you've had enough time lay out kind of what is that 90 days or the first six months look like? And I think that's a mix of people. They want you to kind of go through your org and assess what you're seeing in the org and where you need to beef up or hire they're looking at what you see in the market and they're looking at your programs and what you're doing to scale. And, and they're talking about the people, the process you're seeing and the technology. No, I, it, it reminds me of when we had Jennifer Johnson in here talking about um, on a previous CMO roundtable that she was saying, you know, like your job is to be the chief market officer. And so if you're going to the board with insights about the actual market rather than just, you know, the company that you can kind of curry some favor. I guess that's kind of a weird way of putting it, but uh, that you can build rapport and say like, hey, you know, you brought me in for the reason because I'm an expert at this market, not just the person who's the right person for this job. I'm curious, I don't know if you've seen that work at all. But I certainly, if there's some insights you can bring at both companies, my first board meeting was more focused on people and process and technology and what I thought we needed. And I was still ramping pretty fast. I mean, MongoDB is a very technical market, so I, I didn't have any product insights uh, out of the gate at six weeks. And even at trip actions, business travel actually more complicated than you realize uh, when you think about all the inventory and suppliers and networks that are involved. Uh, so I was very much focused on the people, technology and process within the marketing function out of the gate. So I think we all we've all done this where we we meet with the board obviously before any hire is made. And previously what I'd also done was I'd had multiple meetings with different board members, the leads, and I I sort of walked them through here's my point of view on this company based on my experiences. This is where I think we we should go. And that's triangulating between the CEO and the board. It it also depends on what is the real-time relationship between that CEO and their board. Mm -hmm. And that can be pretty complicated. Uh, and they can get even more complicated over time. My, my initial focus, I think, was definitely one thing in common people. That was one big thing. The other part was strategy. This was a company that had product market fit, Excel backed, a solid board. They really felt like the sky was the limit. We just weren't doing the things we needed to do. So it was really about what kind of strategy do we think should be in place. And I preempted that and walked through with them what the plan would look like over the next 12, 18 months. So we had had those conversations. So the first board meeting wasn't as much of a major event, but really was about people and strategy. Yeah, I think, I think it's important to really understand that the CEO 
has to have a great relationship with the board and that the CEO is talking to the board a lot, right? And so they're getting insights. So he's, you know, he or she is getting questions uh, or concerns uh, or being asked to address certain things or trying to shape the agenda with the board. So you really have to uh, have to be aligned with the CEO because at the end of the day, the CEO is the person who's going to go to bat for you, including needing to push the CEO maybe to places that they're a little bit uncomfortable with. But as long as you are preparing them, um, I think that's a smart thing to do. The second thing is, you know, not every board member is created equal. And so in some instances, you may have three board members that are non-executives, one of whom is really the voice of the board, right? And it's important to not be, um, not be led, you know, astray potentially by one particular board member's comments because it may not be as important as what the kind of lead board member is suggesting because that'll be the agenda that will be paid attention to. Like you'll be, let's make sure that we address this and, and follow up, right? Because that's in the back of their mind always. I like the uh, the piece on uncomfort there. When you start to get more uncomfortable and you want to pitch risky initiatives and you want to pitch things that, especially from a marketing perspective, you know, I, and, th- you know, we're, we're going to talk a lot about SaaS today because that's, you know, the primary market that we're, we're talking about. You might have a lot more potentially very risky campaigns in, you know, consumer goods or something like that you know, pushing the envelope, pushing society with, you know, gigantic advertisements like that. Maybe our our bets are a little more aim small, miss small. But I'm curious, when you're pitching the CEO on something risky, and they believe in you, and they're like, hey, I, I think that there's some, you know, motion that needs to happen here. But the board might be a little more averse to that. I'm curious, like, what is it like to pitch and build buy in for, uh, for big ideas or potentially risky initiatives? I would start with not calling them risky. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I might market them as bold and making a statement. And, you know, I think there's room and companies should do bold things in marketing to get attention. But, but some of it's cal- a little bit of calculated risk. I think that as long as you have a plan and you have a sense of what you're going to measure and what success would look like and very solid reasoning behind why you think you should do this or case studies of others and maybe different industries that have done something uh, similar and had results that looked great. I think if you can package that in a way and you can sell the value of it and you've demonstrated clear, solid thinking and demonstrated results in other areas, you get a little more, you know, you get a little more leash to go do those things would be my thought. I think definitely if, if you are, let's say a category creator or you're a new entrant and you, you can bring those parallels from others who've been there in a similar vein, not exactly in your space, but a different one, that's incredibly powerful because I think nothing succeeds like success. Yeah, uh, The board loves that. So I think that's definitely one aspect of it. It also depends on what your dynamics are. If you already have the dynamic of outside of board meetings, having uh, a set cadence of one-on-ones with a couple of lead board members, that gives you a different avenue to seed, socialize, and set up things that you want to do later that may be bold, 6, 12, you know, multiple months out there. So there are definitely ways to seed it and then bring support from within and outside so that it becomes something that's just, yeah, we should do this. So we were talking to um, a CIO behind the scenes of, of one of our roundtables and they were advising, non-official you know, board member or anything like that, they were advising the CEO of, of a particular company. And, uh, and he was saying to me, he was like, I've been trying to get him to understand that like the ads they're doing on 101 don't make sense. And if you're selling to CIOs, there has to be some type of thing as a CIO, the reason why I would care and I can tell you that your messaging isn't hitting it. Like those type of anecdotes can be pretty awkward potentially. I'm just curious, like things like that where, you know, if you're having the conversation one-on-one with a board member and saying like, hey, you know, we've been, we've been talking about a more bold strategy. Like here's some feedback from the field on our messaging that was in the past, maybe not effective. Like, are you using things like that in those one-on-ones? It, it depends on the nature of the CEOs. There, there are certain CEOs who are more product-facing. I say it'll be internally focused. There are certain CEOs who are market-facing. I've worked with, with both kinds. The market-facing CEOs, they're out there. They are pounding the payment with you. 
So for them, they're constantly absorbing every single little imperfection and what we can do better. Yeah. So in that case, it, it's not much of a sell job. It's really just, hey, we should do this and we should move faster. And they're like, yeah, absolutely. Let's do That's it. That's right. Yeah, because the currency, currency in almost every company is going to come from the customer. I mean, how many times have you seen the salesperson in the room saying, you know, they just, you know, just came back from a, a week in Europe and they talked to 22 customers and the consistent feedback was, boom, we've got to shift the product roadmap because, you know, without having this particular asset, we're leaving, a, we're vulnerable, right? Or whatever it might be. Currency is, with, is from the customer. Let's do a little story time. Any fun, uh, any, I'll say bold bold bets that you all have pitched that have either uh, been accepted or not been accepted in the past in, in your careers? I know you got something harsh. So when I was at Zendesk, we, uh, this, was, this was actually a multi-company effort. So it involved Box, Okta, which was much smaller at that time, uh, Marketo, Jive, even Sky High, which is now part of McAfee. But we had this sort of joint uh, idea that there were this second gen SaaS being born. And it was really about these best of breed solutions that were just passionate about changing how people did customer service or security or, or what have you. And if we got together, we could tell a much bigger story. And ultimately, we pitched it. It came to life. It was called user-centric IT. And it was bringing together CIOs, CTOs to essentially reposition shadow IT stepping into the sunlight. And it worked for a while. The, the challenge there was ultimately it fitted because having all these companies coordinate constantly for long periods of time is definitely a tax or burden. We actually partnered with Jeffrey Moore crossing the chasm yeah. and, and helped sort of usher in what SaaS 2.0 might look like. So that was a bold and sort of unusual, difficult thing to undertake, which, which took off for a bit, but faded over time. Yeah, it's that ultimate, like, you know, one plus one plus one yeah. plus one it could equal 10, but it also could add a level of exponential difficulty in getting everybody on the same page. Okay, so which actually brings me to SaaS. You know, all of you work at SaaS companies. Uh, we have tons of our listeners who are not tech companies or not SaaS, but there are lessons from SaaS that I think are really interesting, uh, obviously for, for any marketer. One of them is about customer retention. You know, one of them is about customer lifetime value. Uh, if you believe that, you know, a customer has a lifetime value, you know, for example, Lexus, I remember back in the day, I got back from my deployment, of course, bought a car, because that's what you do when you have a bunch of money. And, uh, and I remember that the the guy at the Lexus dealer was like, uh, you're never going to buy another car again, you're just gonna buy Lexus for the rest of your life. And he was like, like, I forget my Kelly Blue Book for my car was whatever it was. And he just gave like 25% over the Kelly Blue Book. He's like, I don't really care about that. Like, we'll give you a bunch of money because you're you're only going to buy Lexus forever. And I was like, man, that's a pretty cool, bold statement from somebody who, you know, is talking to someone who's, A, not going to live in his network ever again, right? Like, I, he knew I wasn't going to be in Colorado forever because I was in the military. And uh, he just had, you know, supreme confidence that that was going to be how it was. And I always think about that with like, you know, this idea of customer lifetime value and promising the customer that like you're both going to be in this for the long term. And that's really what, you know, subscription revenues allow you to do. But from the lessons of this, like, how do you ensure that, you know, customer retention is a top priority? Uh, Megan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. Oftentimes we can focus on net new logos and you're being measured on the funnel and generating uh, net new business and opportunities and pipeline. But I, I think most of us know it's the full life cycle and the experience of the customer that actually gets more people into the pipeline as well, not only retention, but if you have happy customers that are joining the experience, they're out talking about it and they're creating proof for all the others to join. And uh, so one of the things even just joining with Trip Actions was hiring customer marketers, folks that are focused on the customer marketing side once they become customers and align very, very closely with our CSM, our customer success organization. And so I think that's one way to ensure it is to hire a team or someone who's just focused on once you become a customer in that relationship. And what do those folks work on? Because I think this is one of those things like we work you know, Salesforce, obviously, uh, Pardot sponsors this podcast. We work with Salesforce customer marketers all the time. So it's kind of one of those things, I think, in the bubble, we forget that, 
like these functions even exist, right? Yes. Um, yeah, I'm curious, like, what does your customer marketing team, what do they think about? What are their, I mean, you don't have to say their KPIs, but I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah. So, I mean, certainly if you think about KPIs, you think a lot about NPS and, and yep. that type of stuff. But also when you're onboarding a customer and what are the things, one, to get them to implementation and, and happiness, making sure that are there guides that you could create or content that you can help your CSM org scale, things that they do over and over again that you can actually turn into a product and deliver, having a roadmap of success for them. Uh, they're working on customer case studies so you can capture the knowledge of the success your customers are having so they can share that out with net new customers and others uh, and having certain checkpoints. You'll notice certain customers doing certain things that are successful and you'll notice things when they're not. And so can you flag it early enough and address it before you lose a customer or can you amplify it to to make sure that you're, you're keeping that customer? So find, finding those flags that help you with retention. I also think just communicating when renewals are coming and following up and the way you do your contracting and licensing and and making sure they're supported all the way through and that it's not till they churn that you then go try to save them, right? Making sure they're having success metrics along the way and then they continue on as a customer because they've gotten the experience you promised them. Well, and I think, you know, especially with trip actions and your solution being so addressing at such an obvious pain point that, you know, corporate travelers have yes. that you probably have like this giant highs and lows of uh, euphoria when it goes right when you know a flight is canceled at the last minute and they get their you know white glove service versus the before and after kind of uh, images I imagine you have a lot of fodder to work with there yeah I mean I, I think we're like the Lexus dealer yeah <laughs> we're you telling go. you you will never use another business travel solution uh, once you try trip actions just because it's unlike what you're experiencing with the legacy players. It is a combination of booking and support and that white glove service that's delivered through tech and AI and machine learning that you want to experience it. It's sort of, it's similar. You won't go back to MapQuest when you can use Waze, yeah. right? And, you know, I Lyft and Uber, I, I will not go back to the taxi unless it's the only thing offered. So you just that sort of disruptive experience. Final question on that. Do you ever feel like you're taxing your customers a little bit too much with their time? Because I know this is something that is potentially like, you know, if you're getting their customer stories and you're sending a film crew in and this is, you know, and you're trying to do all this stuff to market their company and help them with these sort of assets, it can be sometimes a lot and it's really helpful. But maybe there's also, you know, that worry, a downside of like, are we tapping them too many times for, you know, repeat appearances or anything? You know, I've been a major customer advocate for MarTech. 30 different technologies have done case studies and actually think it's very rewarding to be the one who is the customer case study because one, your your company gets a lot of attention totally. and uh, they want to make sure you're successful. You know all the resources at the company. So if something comes up, you can get, you know, answers. You get showcased as a person. So you get to be a hero within your function, but also your company gets that visibility into the market. So your logo gets out there. I love it when people want to do case studies with trip actions because it takes us into those other markets and we become a name that people are familiar with. Uh, and half the battle sometimes is just awareness. You know, I, I think you hear more from a sales rep being concerned if you're talking to their customer totally. too much that you might be exhausting that customer. But I actually think you deliver a lot more value to them. And if they join your advisory board, they're getting roadmap glimpses. They're getting insight. They get attention from your CEO because they're this customer that you're tapping into a lot. So I actually think that there are massive benefits that outweigh uh, getting asked to do something or a quote or a, a case study or video. Yeah. Harsh, you know, I'd be curious since you spent so much time at Slack and now at Atlassian, where you have so much self-serve and so many people that are onboarding this brilliant onboarding process and, you know, essentially could be a human-free onboarding process. I know we onboarded Slack, you know, just us kind of, you know, messing around in there. I I'm curious, how does, that, how does that change? So the Slack example is interesting. We had a very early hack at Slack, which was basically in the very beginning, like sort of T equal to zero, zero almost, we started seeing even smaller smaller teams within even mid-sized larger companies starting to use Slack. And in that time, it was so new and different, they would actually write about it. 
So whether it was medium, whatever, it didn't really matter. They would just write about it. And so instead of trying to go out and source, the team was very small. It was, trying to be, it was being built from scratch. We would just flip those stories into a flipboard. And that then became its own flywheel. Eventually, because everybody who interacted with us, we would just send them the flipboard and say, hey, don't, don't believe our marketing. Look at these people. They'll tell you exactly what their experience was like. And it became such a big flywheel people wanted to be on the flipboard. Yeah. So that really helped out because this was a company nobody heard for heard of, it was coming out of nowhere, uh, unless you weren't hacker news or product hunt, right? So we had to do things like that. And I think when there's, there's two kinds, one is at a bigger company, the how you prioritize a lifetime value retention is different from a younger high growth company because if you're at the smaller stage, there's always a tension about going in and getting the next new logo because that's what everybody's looking at. Bookings growth, bookings growth, bookings growth. If you're in a verticalized space, it's a little bit easier because those people, you know, it's it's a bounded market. So you need to acquire, retain, and ensure those people love you to go out and get the next customer. So it becomes this interconnected thing. At a bigger company, the dynamics are different because you can look at the revenue and say, acquisition versus retention, these are both really important. We'll have OKRs against it. Yeah. And, and, you know, that Flipboard, it kind of to continue the Lexus analogy here, it's like you think of the marketing campaigns that you can do of like 30 years later, how many Lexuses later, you know, all those sort of things, like having your family, you know, like my mom had one, now I have one sort of thing. A lot of used uh, Lexuses and phase on family. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, no, no big red bows. But to start to think about all of those kind of things that you could do, and now with you know whether it's like TikTok or something like that, you could do like seven second reveal videos. You start to think about what does it mean to be a customer over time, and what do you look like? What does your organization look like? You know, what does mission look like? And you're one with three people on Slack versus what do you look like ten years from now with you know whatever, thousands or something like that. Like, I think that painting that picture in the customer's mind of like your whole organization could be transformed on this product, I think is is really cool. This is a bit softer, but I think retention is built on movements. It's, it's really a bit more than just buying a SKU or a package or a feature. That's true lifetime value. So you have to do all these other softer things like being ultra transparent about your roadmaps or you are going to make mistakes and it's really about service recovery there. There's all these other things that come into play with, with LTV. Yeah, I think from a marketing standpoint, especially in spaces that are undergoing a lot of change, what I think about, the operative word that I think about is is guide or guidance. We've talked about this mm -hmm. notion of like being seen as that trusted guide that makes sense of, you know, all the confusion and the, and the madness where everybody's selling. What you're really looking for is clarity and you're looking for guidance. And if you can help people understand where they are and potentially where they are in comparison to others and then where they can go and where others are who are already out there and what those steps look like to get there, you find that you, you build a lot of trust. And if you, in your communications, you also respect the fact that you're talking to your customers before you're talking to anyone else they feel it. And if you're profiling people, whether it's through case studies or simply showcasing them, then, you know, yes, it's, it's of benefit to them, but it's also, there's some pride in it, right? And you're helping to build some careers and some personal brands for people. And all of those things together, I think, make, make a big difference. And, you know, if your product, if what you have to sell is, is something that will naturally grow as an organization expands, then, all you're doing is helping to accelerate that. What about like the long-term approach, like the thinking in 10-year time increments or things like that? Is there any, any things like that that you look at for customers? You know, if you're saying, hey, if this customer stays around for 10 years, you know, they're worth X amount of dollars to the company. So we know that we should spend X amount of dollars to invest in them. Uh, calculations aside, but just like, is there any sort of like framing or thinking that you do that's different than kind of the traditional acquisition kind of mindset? Because I know that's one of the things that I think, you know, the kind of modern growth hacks and things like that, that focus a lot on, you know, 
being against churn and focusing on acquisition and kind of like getting people in the door and then hoping they don't leave. We've probably overcorrected a little bit to that and kind of probably need to go, you know, back towards building long, meaningful relationships. I'm curious, like, how do you market those things or how do you do those those type of campaigns that could drive long-term growth? So I think you're right. I mean, hope is not not a great strategy mm-hmm. uh, to, to start with. Uh, I have worked with either data science teams and or smaller companies in lieu of data science. Your CFO or VP of finance is, is your best friend because you can actually model out differences between segments. And there's a, there's a nuance to what you said, which is if this LTV dollar value, let's say a five-year horizon based on some some set of variables that include, you know, original booking amount, cross-sell potential and upsell potential, you can get to something, right? And then you can segment that by geo, size, former graphics, et cetera. But there's two ways to think about it. It's one way is if they're worth this, then do that. that that's one approach. The things have evolved a little bit in the sense that it's really about taking a look at that segment and saying, you look, I mean, if we want the segment to succeed, we need to invest. So it's almost flipping it and saying, for this segment to succeed, look at their potential value. Let's do these three, four, five things, which essentially are the business case. The business case is built on LTV, uh, and that really helps justify it because there are going to be hypotheses that are going to work out. There are some investments you're going to make that are not going to pan out. When there are going to be some things that will pan out, and the lifetime value calculation will set that up. What about the folks that are thinking about, you know, this idea, if you're to say, we don't want to be fixed pie mindset here, but let's say, you know, you have a budget of 100% and you're spending 8%, 80% on acquisition and 20% on customer success, for example, to be reductive. What is the right way of thinking about that sliding scale for focusing on acquisition versus focusing on retention? I think it depends upon where you where you are. So in the case of signal effects, we we were brought in you know, a little over two years ago to build an engine. The company had it was like high high potential, you know, low current value, high future potential, right? Potential value, and so that was about it was about growth, and it was about new logos and expansion and finding a lot of future customers that look like our existing ones. But at the same time, our cohort analysis was off the charts in terms of, you know, lifetime value. Yep. And so I wanted to make sure that we paid attention to every customer that we brought in. But for sure, it was driving growth. And that was just because that's what the business needed. Well, and I, I, I wonder, like, how much putting humans on that stuff, like you were saying earlier, Megan, like putting actual people both on the customer marketing and the uh, customer success side really help with that. Because, you know, I think a lot of this stuff now, we're so enabled by technology and push notifications and, you know, all these roadmaps and all this stuff that like having a human being to talk to is pretty nice when you have a problem with the product. I'm, I'm, I'm just curious, like, and it's like, again, back to the, you know, with your product where when you're in a bad place and you have trip actions, like, you get to a good place a lot faster. Like that's just such an emotional moment. So like having human beings to talk to is like really critical. But I mean, you can make the argument that that's probably true for a lot of technologies. Just curious, like how much of just the human centric element to that do you think is important? So certainly for our business, where a lot of it is the experiences when you're on a trip or or on the road. And the most frustrating thing for any traveler is to have a flight delayed or canceled or an issue with a hotel or anything like that. And the rate at which someone responds, so chats with you or you get on the phone with them right away and helps you solve the problem and feeling like they are empathetic and getting you to a solution. So, I mean, the human element is, is a lot of our infrastructure provides a human element at a realistic cost than what's out there because we are leveraging, you know, database with a lot of data and AI and machine learning. And we provide tools to our agents that make them extremely fast in understanding who you are, what you prefer, and personalizing uh, the response and getting you what you need. So, I mean, I think it's 
it's a big part of it. But the only way to take the market is to do it in a way that's cost efficient and using technology that you have for that. And part of trust is a consistent experience over time. And so making sure we're delivering a consistent experience over time to build trust um, so that you do want, your, your company does want to renew, your company does want to stay because we've built trust and then transparency in the process with you. I love that. The consistent experience, that's so true. We talk about that all the time with like customer success of like if uh, there's this great story that I'll spare the whole details. But back when I was in the army, uh, there was Alpha Battery and Bravo Batteries to essentially like military companies in this field artillery unit I was in. And uh, the executive officer of this of our battalion always used to say to me, he's like, Ian, Alpha Battery turns in all the reports on time. How many times do you think I check on Alpha? Like never. It's like Bravo always late. I inspect them all the time. And it's like that sort of thing, right? Is if you're the people who are always, you know, giving your customer success reports on time that are always, you know, again, way ahead of renewal that are like constantly in contact, but not too annoying uh, and consistent, then yeah, they can trust you that, you know, you're going to be there and you're going to be doing the right things. I want to talk advisory boards for a second because you brought it up. And we didn't talk about it in any interviews. I don't think with any of you, we didn't talk advisory boards. I want to first start out with what is it like to be invited to advisory boards? For those of our listeners who are thinking about advice or creating an advisory board, just like on that end, like what are the things you're all extremely busy people, you have a ton of stuff going on. Like why would you want to be on an advisory board from your perspectives? I'm on a few, and the reason I am is because I usually I, I know the CEO of the company pretty well, and we have a good relationship, and it's trusted, and I know that just a little bit of of insights here and there are helpful. And also, I think sometimes for the CEO, it's just being able to have someone to call and talk with that isn't necessarily a board member. Yeah. So I think I'll, I'll challenge from both sides my perspective as well as you know what I've received us feedback as well. One is uh, to be able to influence what the overall direction is going to be like. I mean, that is pretty impactful. The other thing you're always looking for is somewhat of an edge. You, you, you really don't know where you're going to learn things because there's only so many sources. We're all reading the same things. We're all talking to roughly similar kinds of folks. But listening to the same podcast, listening to the same podcast, <laughs> there you go. watching the same shows. Um, but I think this is where there's a little bit of a method to the madness, whether it's some element of effort multiplied by serendipity, where you will learn something that takes you a leap ahead or, or, or more than a few feet ahead through these interactions with these boards, because they're built in a certain mindset to bring certain kind of people together. It creates it creates much more value. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of thoughts around advisory boards. I, I definitely think uh, they're necessary for startups and companies because you're hiring people with all different levels of talent. And when you bring an advisor in who's an expert in sales, go to market, or in marketing. Or, or finance or a certain industry, you accelerate the learning for everyone at that company. And um, I think an important part of success is one, continual learning, but learning fast. And if you're going to scale and take a market, you can't afford to learn something over two years. You really need to capture it. And advisors or people who have done it before have pattern recognition and they have an amazing network and they can actually often come in and look at your business from an outside perspective and know right away what, you know, maybe it's a slightly different flavor of what they recommend, but they've seen that before. And it, in their gut, they can quickly say, you should check this area or these three areas. I suspect this is what will help you fix that or leap that. Uh, and so uh, I think from that standpoint, very smart to bring on advisors that have done it uh, and give you an external perspective that aren't you know, there's, there's not a political view. They're just giving you a outside perspective. And from being an advisor, I find it's, I have a lot of fast learning because you get all these little, you know, you're seeing it play out. It's not, I wouldn't call it a playground, but you're, you're seeing yeah. a lot mm -hmm. of things over and over again, and it builds your pattern mm -hmm. recognition. 
And uh, you can help. Actually, I, I find I make much faster decisions in my full operator role because I've, oh, wow, they tried that. Or I learn about something new, a technology they're trying that I'm, I didn't even know of, but that they're seeing some quick success. And often startups don't have a lot of money. So they're very I, scrappy. It might be the right word, but they're um, they're figuring things out on a low budget. And they come up with really innovative ideas when you're constrained by uh, money and, and resources. Okay, so shifting from advisory boards like startup advisory boards to more customer advisory boards or product advisory boards. When we interviewed uh, Karen Steele, CMO Lean Data, she was talking about how there's potentially some pitfalls when you do this. You know, for example, nobody wants to bring everybody together on a weekend because they want to spend time with their families. So, you know, they she thought about, okay, well, if we do do it on a Thursday and a Friday and then rent out, you know, hotel rooms for the rest of the weekend where people could bring their family, that way you're kind of giving them a gift. I'm curious, you know, as you as you build that relationship, that tribe, that whether it's an advisory board or otherwise, how do you build a group of people that are your customers that you can get really high quality feedback who want to be invested in the product without taking too much of their time. One of the things I like to do is if you have an annual user conference is you want them at your user conference talking and maybe they're talking on stage, maybe they're interacting with prospects. So I like to align a cab meeting the day before and then take everyone out to dinner because if they're from out of town, they're coming in for that anyway. So it's you you get the folks at your conference and you um, get to tap into the cab as well. So I think that's good timing. And then if you do a European conference, aligning one for European uh, side of it. When you say tap into the cab, are you talking about like cab sav or what? Do you... um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I literally thought that's a true. No, customer <laughs> advisory board, making sure that they're, you're having an annual user conference. You have all the players in yeah. one place. Have them come, go through you know the product roadmap, get feedback, keep them up on what you're doing. Uh, you can do videos while you're there because you have usually have a production crew. So there's a lot that I think you can do if you have an annual user conference that can uh, be a good use of time for your customer advisory board. That's not make them go out on the weekend. But also potentially maybe some cab sav or some, some <laughs> wine events. And yeah, sure. <laughs> so the, 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 the flagship customer conference, huge opportunity, uh, whether it's North America, Europe, Asia. One of the things we also did was we essentially created a cab CRM. So whoever was on that, we were able to connect with them sometimes where they were. So especially if you're working in in verticalized SaaS, so healthcare, retail, you know, pick your vertical, you roughly know where people are going to be any given month of the year. It's fairly predictable. And so you're going to see them at the same things roughly at the same time. Those are amazing opportunities to create threads that go through the entire year. The second thing is, the cab is going to help you by keeping you honest, giving you feedback, uh, making introductions to other folks. They help you build your ground game, right? They help you scale that way. But the flip is also true, especially, again, going back to vertical SaaS. Those folks, if they are at maybe the gap as a chief customer officer there or CMO there, will eventually maybe be at Lululemon or at Nordstrom or somewhere else. So the flip is also true from a CRM perspective. We were trying to figure out how do we help them do some of the things they're trying to do, whether it's hiring, elevating their roles, doing certain new things, introducing them to other companies, other tech companies. So we would do that as well, have little startup roadshows. We would invite people and make that valuable to them as well. So it was sort of a two-way relationship we ended up building for the cab. You know, one of the things that we've noticed a really strong through line for a lot of the interviews that we've been doing lately is, uh, you know, like gender pay gap analysis. And so we've had like five or six guests across different shows on on Missions Network of Podcasts that have have really cool projects like going around this or really good data, but don't necessarily know each other. And so we've been starting two marketing trends guests, Katrina Wong from Hired, who did a bunch of awesome stuff. And then Emily Kramer from Carta, who did a bunch of awesome stuff. And so just starting to like connect, shout out to both of them, uh, but starting to connect those sort of things where it's like when you have a network of people that potentially don't know are working on, you know, projects, you know, that don't like might know of each other, but don't like those connections can be extremely valuable. Tapping into a user conference a day before, night before kind of thing. Same thing with uh, a big 
tech event, AWS reInvent for us as where many people are. So yes, we do that. The other thing that we do to keep it going and to create continuity is we have a Slack group and it's pretty active, right? But not everybody participates, right? It's just a few people from our side. But the beauty is a lot of the issues and questions that get raised are resolved by other cab members than by us. We're we're really just a facilitator. I mean, yes, we contribute here and there, but um, that's been terrific. So that's just ongoing, real time. You're feeling it. You can tap into a group now. Yeah, I'm with you. We The Slack channel for our cab is active and it's a great way. One, if they raise up any questions, we can talk about products. We can ask them to evangelize something. It's, yeah, it's a great channel for us as well. Do you have an owner for that? Like, is there is there somebody who that's all they do is facilitate the cab? Uh, it's not all they do. I mean, we certainly have a, it, it sits within the customer marketing team, but we jointly work with our product, our head of product and our CSMs. A lot of us are actively monitoring that channel specifically. And so I would say everyone's kind of on it. <laughs> yeah, totally. And then do you think it's important to have like people in, in the cab that are in different functional areas or levels or roles within your customers? Because I'm always curious, like if it's all sea levels versus it's all versus, you know, having different sort of folks or do you have multiple tiers of it? I'm know about best practice there. Yeah, I mean, typically you'll have an executive advisory board versus uh, user advisory board and the, the issues are different. Totally. For sure. But that's how you'd, you'd, you'd separate them. Yeah. Also, just by size of business, you have the startups who have different, like you're saying, some of the the things they're what they need in the product are different than the enterprise companies that are in there. And so it doesn't always make sense, depending on the topic, to have them all in the same room. Yet you need a perspective from all of them if you're going to market to a commercial versus mid-market versus enterprise. And I'd imagine those insights, being able to share those between the two groups would be extremely valuable. You know, if you have all this user information that you could share up to the executives and all the executives share back to the users, um, maybe uh, that one might be a little hairier, but uh, potentially really valuable for those folks to understand what what they're going through. Okay, last question of this super fun marketing trends around. It's so insightful. Let's talk about just building a collaborative team. You know, specifically within marketing where you have folks that want to be data-driven, you have folks that want to be creative, you have folks that want to be uh, maybe more brand play or or more user-centric. Maybe if you have a B2C a B2C slash, you know, B2B kind of hybrid sort of a company. There's lots of different personalities on a marketing team. And I'd say it's probably the most, you know, of any function, you have the widest range of talent. I'm just curious, like, how do you think about making sure that different folks are getting, you know, different skills, but also being able to build and expand upon the stuff that they love to do? So, I once asked my uh, my parents, I said, okay, you know, they've married like a gazillion years, right? And they're best friends, it seems. And I asked them, so what's the secret, right? And they said, it's respect. And that is one of the key ingredients that I, I try to instill in the team that we have. You have respect for the other person's ideas and their work and their perspective, but you're transparent in sharing yours as well. And so we we have this crazy, fun, you know, a little a little bit edgy sometimes group where, and we all sit in a, in a space not much you know bigger than this, and we it's like it's just flying back and forth, you know, we're not hiding behind email or Slack or anything like that. We're 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 talking a lot, and because most of the people are in one place, there's a few people that aren't. You know, we're going through an acquisition right now, and I've been completely transparent about everything that I know I'm sharing with the team because that's one less thing that they have to think about. And that's just, you know, another indication of how I've tried to create this very open, transparent, um, supportive culture. And one of the reasons that I, I think it's been effective is because we have a very, very flat organization as a company. Anybody can be approached by anyone. Right. Any member of our team could be approached by any executive in another department and will be asked a question. And we need to have confidence that that person is going to represent our team 
marketing team's best interest, you know, in those conversations. And by, by having them feel that they really are a part of it, as opposed to just over here in the corner, they do. And I think it works really well. Yeah, I think it's, I, I love that you talk to that level of respect or assuming good intentions. Or I was at a dinner last week. It was a CRV women in tech dinner, but Jeff Weiner was speaking at it and he talked about this concept of leadership with compassion and it goes down, up and sideways, really. Mm-hmm. And so when I, I start to see tension within a team, I, I do really try to have people think about the other and the job they do and being in their shoes and what's on their plate and what it takes and that uh, marketing is this very diverse group of people, which actually why well, I think it makes it very hard for recruiting teams to support marketing because product marketing is so different than field marketing, than systems and website, than operations, than creative. And you need all of those folks to come together to get something out the door, right? Uh, you need to have the right messaging, then you need to understand all the channels, and then you need to get through the noise. So it has to be very creative and look great. And the timing has to be perfect. Uh, and you have to understand the buyer. So all of that coming together And so hiring the right talent, but then making sure they can work together. And as leaders, part of that is having, you know, make sure everyone understands the high level objectives and goals, how their function ties to it and what they're delivering. And then understanding that really nothing goes out the door without everyone else and and making sure that you, you know, sometimes it's respecting that you don't wait to the last minute to flip it over to the creative team to design it, right? Like really that waterfall effect Mm -hmm. of, Everyone hitting their deadlines, I think, helps people work better together and having compassion for the next person that needs to take mm-hmm. it. And if you're the leader of the program or project that you're making sure you're putting the right timeline in place. And then also asking that everyone realize that sometimes deadlines can't move and you're right, you're going to be up late or on the weekend or you're doing a bunch of stuff to make up for the fact that we just didn't get ahead of it or we received a fire drill from somewhere else. But yeah, I think it comes down to the respect side of it. Yeah, I think there's a difference between values and culture. Values, if you really thought through them, need to be more of a bedrock. Your culture should evolve. Like what was okay in the 1930s is not was not okay in the 60s and is definitely not okay now. So I think when you look about building and scaling a team, there has to be room for new people to come in and to add to it and amplify as opposed to conforming to whatever your point in time view might have been on culture. I mean, that's one of the biggest things. One of our core values at Lasting is play as a team. What part of that, what actually means is, you know, pick your sports metaphor. If you've got 11 people on the field, we all have our, our things to do, but we are interconnected. So the waterfall doesn't really work. We have to be dynamic, cognizant, respectful, and aware of each other. And sometimes there's going to be 10 people on the field or eight. So somebody's going to have to freelance and step in and step up and that's also important. That's I think that's part of the culture. And eventually your culture will expand, it will evolve, it will grow, it'll become better. But you want to find people who can add to it, not keep it in a box. It becomes really interesting is, you know, especially if you've built a team from scratch. There's one person when I got there mm-hmm. and I was able to kind of handpick all the people. Yes, they were capable of and highly capable of doing their function. But as the personalities started to come together, it was important to pay attention to see who was actually going to fit and or help it make it even better versus who was going to maybe bring it, bring it down. And at the end of the day, you know, there are a lot of people who can do the work, right? The question is, is, is it actually just the right fit? You're talking about fit, right? Is it the right fit for your dynamic, right? I love it. That's it. That's all we got. Happy, uh, happy Marketing Trends Roundtable Day. Uh, thanks so much for, for coming. Any final final thoughts? We can go around the horn real quick here. Great to be here. You know, very insightful and to be with, you know, yeah. I think peers and networking. That's how we learn and, and do continual learning. Yeah, I really loved it. Le- learned a ton today. Yeah, I'm, I'm new to the Valley. So this is, it's great to meet, you know, others uh, who work here and um, obviously are s- super capable in their jobs. And I really, my takeaway from this is I really like how you just wouldn't let go of the cabs. Uh, <laughs> I love it. It's getting back to that. <laughs> always. Always. I don't even know. I mean, I couldn't tell you the difference between a Merlot and a cab sav or, yeah, I have no idea. Um, they're all red, I think. Um, but yeah, no, thanks for, for hanging out for our listeners. Check out Trip Actions. Uh, check out Elastian. Check out Signal FX if you haven't already. We'll link it up in the show notes. And uh, yeah, take care. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot. World-class marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in the show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, The messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.